I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hi, and welcome to the Appendix and Book Club. This is episode 30 on A. Merritt's Creep Shadow Creep. I am Jeff, and with me is the uh, dark and mysterious Hoy. Hey, good to see you again. It's weird doing it like this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm now living in Cleveland, so we're doing this remotely. Okay. Um, and it is not just Hoy and I. We also have a third person here with us. We've got uh, adventure writer extraordinaire Edgar Johnson. Hello, everyone. Hello, Hello, Edgar. <laughs> hey, Edgar. So I'm glad to have you on. I um, One of the reasons I really wanted to invite you onto this one in particular is after we had recorded the episode on Burn Witch Burn, I then discovered that Burn Witch Burn was a big influence on your writing of Moon Slaves of the Cannibal Kingdom. So I figure with that in mind, we should have you on for the sequel to Burn Witch Burn and we can discuss Creep Shadow Creep. Glad to be here. <laughs> so, um, Edgar, tell our listeners about your introduction to gaming. I started gaming when I was about, I want to say, 10 or 11 years old. A friend of mine at school had a D&D basic set, and uh, I've discovered a kid in my neighborhood also played D&D. His dad worked on the Alaskan pipeline, and they had a ton of money, so he had just, he had everything, you know. And uh, so he'd always be bringing over books and uh, sort of getting into it. Uh, I played probably up until about the time I was 13 or so, and then 14 rolled around in puberty and uh, <laughs> music and everything else. And I, I kind of fell out of it until I was in my 20s. When I was in the Marine Corps, I played briefly uh, a couple games, D&D, uh, GURPS Champions, and then I played a little bit in college, but not in graduate school. And I didn't really get back into gaming until about 2006 after being introduced to it. And I believe 1979 or 1980. So uh, when I got back into it, my first game that I played in was uh, Warhammer Fantasy. And then I played some Dark Heresy. But I found that those uh, settings were just a little bit too... Heavy, and I don't mean heavy in the sense that they're too emotionally laden, but heavy in the sense that there's not a lot of move within the canon. And I was looking for something a little bit uh, freer that allows a little bit more creativity in terms of developing settings and more, and more white space. So yeah, more white space because I, I I I'm going to hack it anyway, and I didn't want to annoy the players at my table who might be purists. So so you were playing. Uh, you started with what? Um, um, Mentor Red Box, then I guess. Ah, uh, Holmes Blue Box. Holmes Blue Box, excellent, super. Okay. Yeah. So then, were, did you go to transition to AD and D at some point, or were you playing, you know, another stream of D and D sort of? AD and D. I AD&D. mean, it was one of those things where they called it, you know, basic D and D. Of course, advanced D and D has got to be better. So got into that mm-hmm. as soon as I possibly could. Right. Right. Um, there was always that confusion at that point too, whether expert was more advanced than advanced or less advanced than advanced. It's like when I was a kid, I used to get really excited about the fact that me and my family were playing Trivial Pursuit, the Genius Edition. I thought we were <laughs> so smart. And then I found out as an adult, it's not the Genius Edition, it's the Genus Edition. <laughs> 
So, uh, Edgar, as you became a uh, more regular player of AD&D, did you become aware of Appendix N at that point, or were you reading any fiction on your own? How did you sort of drift into sort of reading more fantasy fiction? Oh, I was a voracious reader, um, probably since the time I could read. I remember uh, riding in the backseat of my parents' uh, VW uh, probably back in about 1974 or so, and looking down at a newspaper, I was about five at the time, and being so frustrated that I couldn't figure out what it said. And uh, I, I started reading it at age six, and by the time I was about eight or nine, I was reading stuff on my own. I think my first uh, serious adult novel was uh, Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut, which <laughs> I found at my aunt and uncle's house. And uh, uh it had pictures. I thought it was appropriate. It's <laughs> like I thought my father's uh, underground treasury of underground comics was appropriate and nice. so forth and so on. But <laughs> I didn't really think of, uh, I didn't read the Appendix N and Dungeons Master's Guide because we were pretty poor back then. I'd never actually got a copy of the Dungeon Master's Guide until much later in my life. Mm -hmm. But I was reading a lot of stuff. I remember uh, the Chronicles of Prydain were pretty big for me, the Sword sure. of the Stone. Um, of course, uh, Tolkien's Lord of the or the rings and the Hobbit were really big. I also remember a guy named, I want to say John Christopher who wrote about the, you know, sure, the, the, uh, the, um, the, the tripods, tripods. Yeah, the tripods. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was cool as crap. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of that, you know, really did capture my imagination and uh, I really enjoyed it a lot. And I didn't really get into appendix N, frankly, until I sort of started revisiting it because, you know, frankly, uh, the endless hectoring of Joseph Goodman. <laughs> <laughs> and, and just as a, in general terms before we get to a merit how have you found uh you know coming at to appendix and sort of later in your sort of reading career i really enjoy merit a lot um i like i like a lot of this stuff some of the stuff i didn't find as good uh as an example i read some margaret st Clair uh sign of the labrys and i know a lot of people like that book but i didn't find it particularly engaging when i was uh reading it Whereas stuff like uh, Sterling Lanier and Saberhagen, this is when I was working on Atomic Overlord, mm -hmm. I found much more appealing in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I like about Merit is I feel like I get what I'm looking for in H.P. Lovecraft. And I know this is going to be uh, sacrilege to some people. I feel like I'm getting what I want out of H.P. Lovecraft without all the excess baggage that you get with Lovecraft, the you know, the, the layers of misogyny and the, you know, not so covert racism. And uh, it's just not really there in merit in the same way. He's right. There's a little bit of like, Hey, uh, you know, the, the women are uh, sort of more traditional or there's a, a dark woman and a more traditional uh, ingenue, but it's not sort of like, Oh, pat them on the head, go and go on your merry way kind of thing. It's exactly. Possible. And, right. and the, and the ladies can get naked without it becoming a thing about how they're, you know, fallen women and debased and you know, <laughs> right. their lasciviousness is about, about their, their dark racial urges and all that other crap. No, it's fine. And we can get into more of that stuff when we um, actually get into the book discussion, but real quick, uh, so that we can get to the meat of that, let's quickly uh, discuss the editions of what we're reading. So in my hand, I've got the 1947 paperback and it is falling apart, and because I'm, I do what I do. It's now all highlighted and um, completely uh, debased and fallen. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and also it's got this uncredited cover. Uh, we don't really know who the artist is, and it has a woman who 
as, as far as I can tell, it looks like a shadow has approached her and broken the strap of her dress. And now her boob is hanging out and we discover that she has no nipple. Uh, that appears to be the story, the story that's being told on the cover of this old pulp uh, paperback. What, what version are you guys reading? I am reading the uh, Leisure Books 1996 edition that combines Burn Witch Burn and Creep Shadow Creep. Um, and it's got this, uh, it looks like this, kind of shiny mm, there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. got, it's very strange because it's got this sort of shadowy, almost uh, ghoulish gorilla like figure, kind of half face near the spine, um, which does not actually appear in the book. And uh, mm-hmm. that, that cover that you have, Jeff, reminds me of my uh, Seven Footprints to Satan, which is, it's got a very poor, poor painting on the cover. And it's from that era. And part of the reason I haven't read it is because I don't want it to fall apart. I can understand that because Hoy, you've got one of these copies as well, right? But yours is like I do. Pristine. I scored one, uh, scored a VG copy on eBay and was listed. It looks like it was originally a book dealer uh, who was selling it for thirty five, but then he uh, must have passed away, so it became an estate sale. So I think I got it for ten bucks. Nice, nice. Uh, but I'm actually mostly read it on my ebook copy, which is from Feedbooks, um, which is another one of those uh, sites that has a lot of public domain books. But, you know, nicely cleaned up. So sometimes the Gutenberg ones are kind of poorly formatted. And so this one has, you know, proper indentation and what have you. So that's that's pretty, you know, that's what I'm looking for from an ebook. So Very cool. And before we head on into the library, let's quickly look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Cairn. Cairn. And Cairn is a mound of rough stones built as a memorial or a landmark, typically on a hilltop or skyline. And Cairn shows up a lot in this story. Um, and the first time we encounter the word is on page 31 and it says, and instead of the pleasant candlelighted rooms, I saw a vast plain covered with huge stones arranged in ordered aisles, all marching to a central circle of monoliths within which was a gigantic cairn. So yeah, cairn is a pretty cool old timey word for um, a site that you can do some adventuring in. And we've got a whole lot of adventuring happening in the cairn here. So, um, Edgar, did you also have a word that you wanted to throw into the mix? Well, it's not so much a word as, as the way he phrases certain, certain things. Far and far away, long and long ago, this kind of archaic language keeps cropping up in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it makes it more fabulous in the sense of being something straight out of fable. Uh, and it's very evocative in that way and in much the same way that some of these high guy guys in words kind of uh, get the same uh, task done. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right. And we had some other cool ones in here. We, we kept the word corpusant quite a bit. And, uh, and Hoy, there was one that you had uh, noticed was appearing quite a bit. I said aureole. So not used the way that we use it now. <laughs> it's more used as a crown or halo, <laughs> uh, which I guess it still is now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But uh, corpusant, by the way, is a ghost light. Is that correct? Or sort of like a will-o'-the-wisp kind yeah, of thing? Yeah, kind of, yeah. It's a, it's, yeah, yeah. it's like a St. Elmo's Fire kind of thing. There you go. So cool. So. We are now in the library. So I guess uh, get cozy, get your feet by the fire. And uh, Edgar, what did you think of Creep Shadow Creep? It really is one of my favorite stories uh, by by Merritt. Uh, I like it. I like it a lot. There's a lot of stuff that I can work with here. Um Part of it is the, for me, it's the kind of symbolism and philosophy sort of areas. He's, 
in lots of his books, but especially in this one, you see him working really uh, skillfully with with binary oppositions and contrasts, light and dark, science and superstition, dream and reality, the sea and the earth, and and, and other things like that. Uh, there's also a kind of a, a dreamlike quality to it, where where you have history as a living thing, the past is included in the present, and what is real and what is being relived and uh, what is a vision, what is illusion is kind of uh, left up in the air. And there's uh, those things to me uh, are so well done in this novel that I haven't really seen it in any other that he's done. I noticed that some sort of uh, reiteration of uh, themes, but maybe more done skillfully, there's a uh, penetration of barriers uh-huh. you know, into dream states, alternate dimensions. That seems to be, um, as you mentioned, binaries is usually a dark female figure and a light female figure. Yeah. There's a uh, regression into past lives I've seen in um, some of its short fiction. And I think maybe Ship of Ishtar has some of that too, although I haven't read Ship of Ishtar. So there's, there's um, definitely a, it's of a piece of his earlier work, but as you say, maybe it's his most polished work. And he, he uses a lot of lush, really descriptive language with, language with lots of appeals to the reader's senses. Um, and I don't think, uh, you know, in contrast to say Lovecraft, he does that nearly as well. I feel like it also had a real kind of cinematic feel to it. Like while I was reading it, it very much felt like I was watching either an old film noir or one of those like 1940s Val Luton horror films, like uh, Cat People, Curse of the Cat People, I Walked to the Zombie, those kinds of movies. It also at times had a very kind of Italian Gothic, 60 Gothic, 60s Gothic horror vibe to it. Like I really felt like, and I'm not sure how you say her name. Is it Dahoot? Is it Dahu? Like, how do you say it? I was I was thinking Dahut, but you might be right. Um, it being uh, kind of there's a lot of French in here, the Breton influence. Mm-hmm. For the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to call her Dahut. But um, so I felt like I could see her played by Barbara Steele. Do you, are you guys familiar with Barbara Steele? Sure, sure. From okay. um, Black Sunday and. Yeah, and she yeah. was just in a ton of those. She was like this this great English actress who was in all of these like sixties Italian Gothic horror films, and just like she she does such a great job of that. Like you know, I'm I, I'm a, I'm a dark and evil woman, but like now it's it's daytime, and I'm like I'm, I'm beautiful and kind and, and loving and seductive. You know, it, it very much felt like that kind of that kind of a character, yeah. which mm-hmm. I dug. I saw her as a little bit of not visually, but in demeanor, a little bit like uh, Barbara Stanwyck, actually. Huh. Interesting. I can see that too. Yeah. Yeah. And comparing her to Helen is uh, a pretty fun uh, comparison as well, because our two main female characters couldn't be more different. One is of the sea and the other is of the earth, right? Right. Yes. And Helen has a little bit of fire too. She's definitely a little uh, uh, hot tempered, but not in a um, destructive way, but she's got, you know, warming fire. And, and Jeff, I didn't mean to do this, but in our in our last game, I said my character looks like uh, like Tuesday Weld. I would uh-huh. I would say that's that's not a redheaded Tuesday Weld would be a great uh, uh, person to play Helen in the movie. <laughs> oh yeah, I can absolutely see that. That's great. <laughs> and I really feel like the Helen character also added to the cinematic seventies vibe. I'm sorry, forties vibe, because um, as soon as she appears, this whole thing about 
her being 10 years younger, but she was like once like he knew her like as, as a young girl, but now she's like suddenly this like gorgeous adult. It felt like every single Hollywood movie from the forties, there's always that scene where like, you know, the, the dashing handsome man comes back to his hometown and that little tomboy who used to like see down the road is now suddenly this like beautiful woman. It's, it's very much kind of a, a, a fun little trope cliche from the era that I think works pretty well within the story. Like that uh, Elvis song, Little Sister. Right, yes. Right. Little yes. Sister, don't you? <laughs> and also just that like immediately she's already like the, the nagging fiance within like an hour of them uh, <laughs> hanging out together as adults. And also like little, um, there was a moment too where I forget who it was. I think it was DeCaradel when they first ended up getting together and they were talking about sorcery and whether these things are real or not. And he gets so angry that he's holding a wine glass and he just like crushes it in his hand. And it's this thing that nobody has ever done in real life. And you don't normally see in in in, in literature, but it's something I, I often saw in movies from around that time. Yeah, I think that was Lowell actually, when uh, he mentioned the witch from Burn oh, Witch Burn. Right, yes, right. yes. Mandalip, who was apparently DeCaradel's lover. Right, yeah. Right. Right, which was set up in the previous book because we remember that um, she mentioned a lover that she'd had in Europe. Um, and, and I like that uh, uh, Lowell was a, almost a little bit PTSD from his previous experience. He was, he was genuinely shaken, you know. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't like he just, you know, everything went back to normal and he could just, you know, dismiss everything as, uh, you know, some weirdo hallucination that he'd had in the previous book. And uh, I mean, I think actually... Um, Karanak is is interesting because he's he's definitely a film noir character. He's definitely pretty dark, even though he's not our nominal hero. He does really dark stuff. Oh, right? ab- absolutely, and he's also sort of that uh you know that that Indiana Jones figure that you know that explorer who goes off to find the weird crap in the various far flung places. Mm-hmm. Right, he brings knowledge. He's not a naive just coming in like oh this could never happen. He 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 it's it's like he knows almost from the very beginning, and it's just a matter of sussing out who's 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 got what motives and right? he knows and renee de caradel sort of makes a reference later in the book that maybe it wasn't by accident maybe he was grooming the situation such that you know he would fall in with them but mm-hmm. it's not substantiated yeah that's 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 the one of the one of the two competing narratives that he presents to karanak later on um, it, it, I feel like the story did a pretty good job of debunking that part of the narrative, but there may still be some elements of that that are true, which is another thing that I really like about Merit in general so far, because all I've read so far are these two. But in both of them, there are a lot, a lot of the mysteries are left unsolved. And I love it when an author respects the intelligence of his audience enough to like just let us kind of come to our own conclusions on a lot of things, because there's a lot of stuff that like isn't explained. And I think uh, in an, something to recognize about these two, especially, is they are first and foremost mystery novels. They're about investigation, and it's the investigator's first-person experience that informs the audience. We really only know what that person tells us or shows us. Mm-hmm. And it's always through that person's perspective, which may or may not be reliable. And I think this definitely draws on Merritt's background as a journalist and initially i mean later on he was primarily an editor but at the beginning of his career he was very much a a street reporter and um there's uh not clear but apparently he left town from philadelphia under mysterious circumstances and saw something that he never once ever spoke about again we don't know if it was you know organized crime or something else or just you know major corruption or something but so I, i like that he brings that sort of 
sense of uncertainty, the world is not what it should be kind of vibe to a lot of his fiction. And one thing I also really like about this particular story is he really goes there. You know, he doesn't he doesn't hold back from uh, really kind of letting the audience see the horrific things that are happening. You know, and and first and when we first encounter it, like it, it like even 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 not the super gory stuff, but like initially when Bill Bill Bennett first starts telling us about kind of being stalked by the shadow, we end up getting some really good like super pulpy horror in there where he's telling the story about, you know, walking up and seeing this this cab that's got somebody in the back seat but then finding out there is nobody in the back seat because the cab driver flashes the light back there and there's nobody there. But so he gets in the cab anyways and they start driving off, but he keeps thinking that there's somebody else in the cab with him. Like that seems like really freaky, but especially later on in the scene where Karanak is being a part of this crazy sacrifice that's happening. And he's not sure if it's really happening or not, but like we've fully got like infants who are being like murdered and their 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 and their bodies are being thrown into the fire and their blood is being used for the sacrifices and really kind of crazy stuff is happening and it's the kind of thing that i think a lot of people in 2018 don't think that people in this era were really writing about as graphically as he was and i think part of it is also the cinematic aspect of it because you watch a 1940s movie and it, it's never that gory but I think it's easy to assume that the literature also wasn't that gory, but this one totally is. I think he also kind of does that with, with sex. He doesn't, he doesn't depict it quite as, as explicitly as he does the sacrificial stuff and the gore and whatnot, but he definitely talks about people getting naked and talks Mm -hmm. about, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, fade to black and then the aftermath of, of whatever happened in the bedroom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even like Helen, who's kind of our more innocent character here, there's a moment where she like unashamedly, you know, exposes her breasts in this way that like just said, like, it's just to show him like, I'm yours, you can have me. And there's nothing, uh, there's nothing shameful about it. It's not something that we're not, we're not supposed to walk away from that scene feeling anything less about Helen. Right. And imagine, like, you know, I keep going back to Lovecraft, but imagine Lovecraft handling this, the same material. I think he would have done that so much different. <laughs> so different. Yeah. Absolutely. He would have he would have the protagonist faint in the middle as soon as the breasts were shown. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and that's an interesting, too, contrast, because that particular scene that you're talking about, Helen is giving life, right? Whereas right. Dahoot is basically taking life when she engages in, in, in sex and in intercourse and, you know, uh, you know, intimacy. Yeah. Oh, right. absolutely. And, and yeah. remember that, uh, he, she's, she's called Madonna by the gangster Ricori, uh, yeah. earlier on, uh, which, you know, maybe my lady, but it's also maybe a reference to, to Mary. And then yeah. later she sacrifices herself to Alan's shadow form by getting naked and basically saying, take my life. Mm-hmm. How did how successful did you guys find the comedic aspects of the novel? Because for me, the, the the scene I especially think of is when he's escaping the tower in New York and he's climbing down and ends up in the the parlor full of men playing poker. Um, what what did you guys think of that that particular interlude? I loved it. I <laughs> like here's here's what I kind of like about it is it's also kind of uh, it's very mythic because what he's doing essentially is he's es- escaping the sorceress's tower. Right. You mm-hmm. could see like, you could see like a Conan doing that or somebody of that nature, or even, you know, Alain de Karnak, you know, this, this historical figure who he's embodying and, you know, he doesn't, 
he doesn't get away clean. He ends up in the den of these, these, these tricksters who are going to take their pound of flesh before they're going to let him get away. And he has to, you know, it's like going into the realm of fairy where he has to drink and eat with them and play poker until he wins his clothes back. <laughs> one leg at a time. Too. He can't win a whole pair of pants. He has to win a seat, like one leg, one leg. Right. Right. And, so. and he's like, and it's almost like he has to reclaim himself a bit at a time to become himself again. And I think Merritt is obviously very aware of this, even I'm not sure in this particular scene, although I would say BS because he's very aware of all sorts of mythic resonances uh, in all of his fiction. And he was very uh, alert to sort of, sort of anthropological, cultural, sociological stuff. Um, so that, I think that's really fascinating that you bring that up because it seemingly is just a tossed off scene. But now that you mention it, that's such, such a deeper reading of much a deeper reading of that scene. Well, here's, here's, that, a, here's a reading I made of it as I was putting my notes together for this episode. Um, uh, time in the Shadowlands is like a dream and much of the character's journey is about coming to terms with the porousness and provisional nature of objective reality. It also makes Alan a nexus between binaries, half alive shadows, straddling past and present, submitting to Dahoot, but Helen redeems him. The darkness is as light to him and he can see clearly, you know, there, there's like all these ways in which it's, I wouldn't necessarily call it the hero's journey because it's not really that sort of structure, but if he's the hero, he's kind of like uh, in in the sense of maybe a Claude Levi Strauss, where we're talking about ritual. He is that liminal space where the binaries get resolved, right? Where the past and the present get resolved, where the the dark woman and the and and the light woman get resolved, where um, reality and and fiction get resolved. I think it's a really clever analysis. I like that. Um, yes. what, was there was there anything about the story that didn't work for you guys? The end went too quick. It was very much kind of the end of like a 1950s monster movie where like as soon as we kill the big beast, it's just the credits that it just suddenly says the end. And then like the, the theater lights go up and I was like, hey, wait. Um. <laughs> and when she summoned the, you know, summoned the sea to, you know, break the 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 rockery and the cairn and, and kill her father. Dehoot, you know, that, that was like downplayed, like, you know, maybe the CGI budget wasn't there or, <laughs> but, you know, I almost feel like it would have been stronger if, you know, they'd been in the house or we'd seen more about what happened to the house. All we were basically told is, you know, everything got flattened and, you know, the, the house isn't there anymore. And, you know, that's yeah. it. But, right. you know, that yeah. took and place that in what, about two pages. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that was a weird moment because it's uh, Karanak is seemingly in the middle of the action, but it's this weird mystical vision because he's actually hundreds of yards away on the top of this hill. And so it was like sort of a logistical thing to, I guess, enable him and Rikori to survive this tidal wave, essentially, mm -hmm. right? but actually still be in the middle of the and action. And Rikori at one point goes, um, and my men all died. Right. I know. <laughs> yeah. And it's such a major sacrifice. And like they, and, yeah. and Karanak doesn't really seem to be that stressed out about that aspect of it. I thought that De Caradel as a sort of cosmopolitan sort of uh, science, uh, psychologist was really interesting, but he did not end up being as mythic as Dahoot or as Madame Mandalip was in the first mm -hmm. book. You know, he's, he talks about, in a sense, maybe he wasn't, maybe he was relying on studied knowledge. He wasn't sort of essentially reincarnated, reincarnated the way that Dahoot was. Um, there's no talk about him actually being present in the past you know, uh, uh, the Caradel. And so maybe he's sort of, sort of faking it to make it, 
unlike the who who's really part of that or Karanak who's really part of that or Mandalip who was, you know, previously. That's a good so. point because Mandalip very much had powers that we saw on the page. Dahoot very much has powers we saw on the page. Did Decaradel ever do anything definite that we saw on the page? Because there's lots of stuff that he may or may not have done, but I don't know that there's anything we actually physically saw him do. I mean, he dressed the part, I suppose. Yeah. Right, right. And he does actually, he is dismissive of Mandalip in one sentence where he says like, Helen, oh, and you, you're, the, you're playing with toys, right? When he's talking about bringing the, um, the creature in the yeah, Cairn back. The gatherer right? in the Cairn, right? yeah. So, he's, he's busy working on his Karen. patron bond. Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I guess he's, he's just saving it all up. And so rather than being a, a daily active participant, the way that, you know, Mandalip or, or Hel- uh, Dahoot are, um, I sense I did sense a uh, sense of jealousy to his own daughter, and in that in sense that she is much more intrinsically connected to these forces in the way that he is having to do maybe approach it from a sense a standpoint of scholarly yeah. knowledge. Another thing that I thought was interesting was this whole concept of like Chekhov's gun. Like if we see the gun, it needs to be fired at some point. There was a lot of time spent with us keeping track of where Karenak's gun was at any given time, whether or not it was loaded. Um, whether it was with him, whether it was still on the floor in the room or whatever. Am I mistaken or did he never actually fire that gun? He fired it at Dahoot when she was bearing down on him in the hunt. Oh, okay. Okay. But we never figured out whether he hit her or not and he only got to fire it once. Okay. And do you guys have any particular theories as to who or what Dahoot was and why she had all of this like sea god magic? See, as I was thinking about this, I, you know, I am not too far off from reading some Lovecraft, uh, you know, Shadow over Innsmouth and thinking about, you know, if she's of the sea, you know, it almost seemed like she had the blood of the gods in her in some fashion, if you know what I mean, you know, linked to Poseidon. But I think uh, Alan Karnak uh, early on said, you know, yeah, the Greeks called the god Poseidon, but it has a much older, older name than that. And, mm-hmm. it, and they were talking about sorry, tens of thousands of years. They were talking, right? Right, right. Not, not like Atlantis would have been just like the most recent iteration of this thing. And, and that it predates, you know, East, it predates, you know, Crete, it predates that and goes all the way back into ancestral memory or pre-ancestral. Yeah. And this whole concept of ancestral memory is kind of interesting. And this might be a good way of uh, segueing into the gaming side of this conversation, you know, cause here, here we've got this premise that we have lived these uh, we've, we've been reincarnated over and over again, that we, that within our minds, we have access to these ancestral memories. Do you feel like that's something that you could bring into your, your gaming in an interesting way? Cause I feel like there's a lot of ways that you could use that in your adventure writing or in your campaigns to kind of, give your, 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 your players an opportunity to kind of have additional depth or to make like a specific location more kind of tied into a specific PC. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? I think the Shadowlands is a, a really interesting way to do it, uh, particularly mm-hmm. if there's, you know, strange substances or drugs or hypnotism or whatever being part of this. Yeah. I, I, I liked his description of, you know, the, the Shadowlands, he didn't call them the Shadowlands. That's my term for it. Um, but, you know, he runs into that knight and a uh, 14th century French knight who bids him to kill his witch. 
and he's trying to carry him, but the horse is getting, you know, like worn out because he's half alive. And he's mm-hmm. like, oh, but, you know, you're half alive. And he refers to Alan as his half brother, right? Because mm-hmm. he's a living shadow. And, uh, you know, there's not the same sense of distance. There's not the same sense of sight. It's almost like if somebody were to, um, you know, have like a, a f- the realm of fairy in their game. Yeah. Right? it doesn't work the same way. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, if you, you know, like, like have an underworld that doesn't work the same way. And one of the ways to work with that is to um, change the way the senses work, mm-hmm. change the way the nature of reality works, change the way physics works. Yeah. Um, but, but use that in ways that can, in, if, if, if you got a clever player that can advantage the character, right? Because he doesn't just journey to the Shadowlands, um, he makes allies there, and they later end up, um, you know, doing what they do at the end. Um, I I also kind of see. I, I wondered to myself as I was reading this, you know, did he rip? Did J.R.R. Tolkien rip off a merit? You know, with the white with the waves that become the white horses of Poseidon and mm. Alan's trip, right. like Aragorn's into the Shadowlands where he makes allies of these ghosts. Right. You know, it was written in 1934, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 1934. And I think, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings stuff didn't come out until started in the forties. And I think went into the fifties. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Certainly it's got an, enough of a mythic resonance that it would not, it would not be, unusual for him to sort of meet at a certain point. Um, the, the author I think was definitely influenced was uh, C.L. Moore's um, Jarelle Jouari series because she enters a, a Shadowland through the bottom of her castle and the time and distance is completely fun- funky in that, that story too. So I think that that's a definite influence. And newer works uh, by people like say, uh, oh, Neil Gaiman and Tim Powers, I think draw upon that sort of, of, magical realm that's behind the the reality that we all sort of accept as reality. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, obviously A and D, A, D and D had the ethereal mm-hmm. plane and the astral plane. So we can, we can mess with that. And, uh, you know, obviously DCC is always doing these dimension hopping stuff. And also with the astral plane, there was this thing where he had, they had, he had that silver filament that was kind of keeping him anchored to the world that he was in, which I know I've heard people say that the AD&D source for that is Doctor Strange, which I can't speak to because I don't really I'm not I'm not really much of a comics reader. Um, but this also seemed to kind of be within the same vein as well. And I wouldn't be surprised if the people who wrote Doctor Strange had read this stuff, too. Right. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because that's one of the things, too, about, you know, when you say like, oh, well, you know, this person got it from this thing. And it's like, well, maybe actually they both kind of got it from this earlier source, potentially. Or it, it, It's kind of hard to, to say sometimes. Right, right. I, I, I feel like when I'm looking through here, though, I think there were a lot of a lot of things that were kind of obvious to me as why this might be one of the three A Merit novels that Lovecraft specifically cites. I'm sorry, Lovecraft, that Gygax specifically cites as inspiration for AD&D because one of the things I was thinking about was how these illusions that he's experiencing, whether they're illusions or not, we're not really sure, but if they are, they're illusions that very much because you believe them, they are real. And I think about how phantasmal, phantasmal force or hallucinatory terrain, those spells are written. The way that they're designed is that, you know, if you have an illusion of a fireball, it will burn you to death. 
unless you can successfully disbelieve it. Or if there's an illusion of a pit trap, you're going to fall into it and land on those spikes, even though they're not really there, but the damage is going to be real unless you can successfully disbelieve it. And I remember the first time encountering those kinds of spells being like, this is kind of hard to wrap my brain around, but now I can kind of see where potentially maybe he, maybe the seedling of that was from Creep Shadow Creep. That is interesting. Yeah, I think it's it's almost it's a little hard to GM from the uh, player's side. I guess you just cast it, and, you know, have the the non-player characters and the monsters just make the same throws. But from the GM side, equally, rather than saying this person casts this, uh, you know, illusions, just say, hey, they cast a fireball, make your save, right? But then tell them, but you know what save they're really making? It's a it's a save against you know belief rather than a save against fireball. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, um, and then you have to give them subtle little clues in your in your uh, presentation of the scene that it might indicate it's not a real thing and then maybe if they can figure it out they get a bonus of the saving throw mm-hmm. you know um but it's it's a game mastery challenge i guess in a sense and a, a descriptive challenge yeah. yeah i uh there's there's definitely another thing here that appeals to me uh, anybody who's read uh atomic overlord or uh, uh moon saves the cannibal kingdom which if you haven't you shouldn't they're both amazing adventures Thank you. Written by Edgar. You can tell that I really like to have NPCs who can be manipulated to work against each other or mm-hmm. who that already have opposed interests. And I think in, in this book, you see that Dehut and uh, you know her father, yeah, they're, they're father and daughter, but they're competitors in a way. They have mm-hmm. different visions and different interests. And part of what makes Alan uh, you know, clever is he's able to manipulate them to, uh, to actively oppose each other rather than just passively do so. He also consorts with NPC allies from the criminal under, underworld, right? Uh, he, he gathers his allies from, you know, maybe previous adventures. Uh, you know, who's this guy I know in, in town who, you know, he works for the Thieves Guild. But, you know, we've worked together before and, you know, I can maybe draw him into this if I say it's about witchcraft, right? <laughs> Which is, you know, he very much explicitly sets out to draw in Ricori and McCann uh, with that specific way, right? Yeah. No, he, he, it, that's absolutely true. I think those are really great points. And um, I'll just kind of go on to a tangent for a quick second. Um, on another podcast I'm on, Spellburn, we have an episode coming up soon where somebody wrote in and was talking about how they have a frustration with DCC adventure modules in that he doesn't feel like they have... NPCs that you can really interact with and do things with. And I think your, your, your adventure modules are a great example of that. Like, that's not true. <laughs> there are always a lot of characters that you can do fun and interesting things with, but you also don't have to, like, it's not railroaded in there. You know, you can interact with these people, you can get them to your side, you can kill them, you can ignore them, whatever you want to do, you can do, but you have the option of bringing these people in and having a very different experience depending on how you want to interact with them. You bet. And you can have recurring NPCs. You can, you can use patrons in that way as well. Yeah. Uh, it just depends on how much you want to throw at them. And I think in service of not railroading, it's important that you let your, let your players tell you which NPCs are important or interesting to them and kind of roll with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think part of that is that reputation that maybe DCC gets from being um, the most um, prominent presentation of DCC is usually through like, convention play reports and that kind of thing. And so obviously that sort of compresses the time frame in which you have to sort of present the NPC characters. But I mean, obviously it's not the way you have to play. It just seems to be that people hear about that more than 
um, you know, how it's played, you know, at various home games. So then it creates a preconception of what DCC is. Sure. Do you, th- um, do you think that the, uh, the reputation that it's earned, and I think it's kind of unfair as being, you know, kind of the gonzo sort of setting. Do you think that that sometimes makes people think that everything in it is disposable, even the NPCs, even the characters, even whatever? Um, I think you're right. I think it is unfair, but it does lead to that. And it, it's not it's not like, you know, 90% of its reputation, but there's, it just does lean a little bit that way. And so people take it a little bit less seriously than, you know, a game of 5e or, or you know, in terms of like they feel a little bit less invested or they think that they, they can feel less invested in their characters. Um, but that's clearly not true. I mean, otherwise, why would you have this whole process of gaining patrons and questing for your spells and, mm-hmm. and those kind of things like that? So. Yeah. Um, I think it's just, you know, um, sort of setting the, getting the the actual judge to buy into re- realizing that each game has to be played on in terms of its own merits, in terms of the players who are at the table, rather than some preconceived notion of, you know, it's always got to be about, you know, the crazy crit or the, you know, the corruption role. Um, not that those aren't like a tremendous amount of fun. Sure. But, or spell burning but, down to get that maximum spell result. Right, 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 and and you look in contrast at something like uh, Lamentations, of the Flame Princess. It's got the reputation of being what somebody called misery crawl, or you know, <laughs> like another rag, you know, ragy screw job, or whatever. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the same thing in the same reputation, the opposite direction. And in either case, what I can see is, you know, are we playing the game, or are we letting the game play us? I yeah. mean, it's your table. How do you mm-hmm. want your table to be? How seriously? seriously or silly you know do you want to take it um and yeah that's a very well put taking point and i think that some of the people are sort of pushing back and i've noticed a couple of facebook threads and stuff like that from people sort of asking about that and then there's some pushback from the people who've been playing it longer so no no it doesn't have to be i mean look at you know i mean just for one example of mine is i've been playing um portsmouth mermaid which daniel bishop wrote and i've gotten eight sessions out of that so far and it's probably easily another two sessions to go um you know, even at an open table setting, I've still gotten eight sessions out of that just by saying, okay, I'm just going to go with where the players take me, not say, here's where it has to be, you know? So, yeah, it's very much a judging style and a player style. And as long as you've got the, the right judge and the right players, if you're all kind of on the same page, you can have the kind of adventure you're looking for, be that a gonzo style where everything is disposable and you can just burn everything down or kind of a more serious kind of long-term focused campaign or something in between those two points. Now, looking at uh, the the fact that this is cited as a source of inspiration for the original game, uh, you know, the title itself has shadow in it, and we've got all these shadows featured throughout it. Are the shadows from Creep Shadow Creep the shadows from the first edition monster manual? And if so, why? And if not, why not? I mean, they do a sort of a life drain towards the end, right? Or a certain point when they're dragging. But they're a little bit more physical than the shadows in... Um in D&D, as I recall, although I haven't read the Monster Manual in a while. Yeah, and if I recall correctly, in, in first edition, they're not undead, but by like fifth edition, they are. And I for, and I don't remember which edition that change happened in, but I know at some point that switch happened. And honestly, I'm going to have to claim ignorance on this one. I'm not one of those people who has memorized the Monster Manual. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't really give you a sense of how like they are. Mm-hmm. And even the shadows are have some variation in the book, right? Because once it's into the shadow world itself, they're actually people, right? Yeah. And some of them are sort of are sort of sort of um, 
clearly derived from living people, but are just like one remaining aspect of their personality, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the hunger or desire for vengeance or something like that. You can see that, oh, it's his, his friend shadow, but all that's left of it is just this desire for, you know, vengeance on Dahoot, for example. Right. So that's an interesting uh, point. Um, even some of the stuff that you would consider like horrible, like these sort of misshapen frog-like creatures, he gets down there. They don't mess with him. They're just a shadow, <laughs> just a shadow trying to get by. Right. Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> and how about the druids from Creep Shadow Creep? Are these the oh. druids from our uh, AD&D and Dungeons and Dragons adventures, or is this a different kind of druid? Uh, no. They are not our AD and D druids, but they should be. They should, <laughs> should be exactly, <laughs> exactly, because these druids are really just like priests who are just uh, clobbering people to death in the service of some dark entity. I'm not even really sure if we encounter kind of the D and D druid in um, in the appendix. Then I'll be interested to see if we come across something that's that's right. called I mean, the, a druid the D&D that behaves druid. like that. Right. The D&D druid wasn't Gary Gygax anyway. That was uh, Dennis Starr. Anyway, yes, right? yes, yeah. yeah. Right, right. And um, I, w- sorry, I, would say that, I would say that probably all fantasy games that I've encountered so far get clerics wrong. They get druids wrong. Yeah. And it's precisely because they don't take the religion seriously enough. So just as an example, like in a game like DCC, everybody's got luck. I was thinking uh, earlier today as I was thinking about this book, how do you take a cleric and really engineer it so that the, the, the character owes service to the God will get rid of luck and put something called, I don't know, zeal or faith or something like that. And you have to be actively in service to your God or goddess or gods or whatever you have in order to earn it. And you lose it. If you don't, you yeah. don't win followers. If you don't make sacrifice, if you don't do that, I mean, don't worry about disapproval. Don't worry about your spell rolls. You're not even going to get to make those spell rolls if your zeal is not sufficient, right? Mm-hmm. So are you are you you know raising temples of the of you know the unbeliever? Are you are you winning converts? What are you doing? I agree. I think that's a lot more compelling than just you get a slightly fewer uh, a slightly fewer hit die healed if it's an adjacent alignment or something like that, that, that doesn't speak to me. That mechanic doesn't speak to me as much as like something that you're speaking about. Like that's, that's more exciting for a cleric for me, instead of it just being another person who can cast spells, but there are a slightly different set of spells. I I want, I want it to actually feel very different in the game. If you're going to use them. Although personally, I think you guys both know, I'd rather just not have them and have the wizard have all those spells. I agree. That makes more sense to me, but right. Um, the other thing, I guess, talking about religion, from the outside, from an anthropological point of view, you could say, oh, you know, a lot of these religions are very similar. But obviously, within the religion, it's all about the minor differences, right? And so the specificity of the cults, the rituals, it's not just like, oh, we just chant call for God, right? Here we have this, this pouring of this blood onto the flames that creates these columns of smoke. How they sacrifice, you know. It's not, that's really cool. I mean, it's horrible, but it's not like a generic dagger in the chest, right? It's like they're literally beating in the chests of their sacrifices with these, you know, golden hammers, right? It's, it's so specific. That's what makes it cool, right? Even if, it's, whether it's an evil cult or whether you're presenting a, you know, the so-called good religion to make it very specific and people in that setting would know this is how I behave to honor my God, my God, my religion, right? Oh, yeah. And to sort of give that flavor, so I'm curious, uh, a judging style question here. So in this story, 
Karadak sits down with Dekaradel and Dahoot and they give him the that green drink. And then afterwards he like loses his inhibitions and then he ends up taking place, taking part in this horrific sacrifice. And then the following morning he wakes up and he's not sure if it's real or not. If you wanted to include something like that in your game, how would you approach that? Would you have them drink the wine and then just tell the players what happened and then let them figure out if it was real or not? Or would you, would you kind of allow for them to kind of play through that scene in the game? I think I am torn on this because my first reaction is make a will save, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But then as I start thinking about it, how I would, I would maybe even ask a question of the players themselves. And, you know, maybe this is sort of me running in that sort of, uh, you know, powered by the apocalypse direction, but getting a sense of the type of game that these people want to play and whether they're going to be threatened or whether they're going to feel ripped off if I'm suddenly piloting their character for them and, and making the game happen to them rather than them playing the game and saying, look, this is something that I'd like to do. Are you comfortable with that? Is not mm. a bad question to ask. Well, especially with something that dark, um, that's definitely not a bad question to ask. But I think it would be, you could do something, I'm not saying it's in between, but it's kind of a weird way to say it, but little snapshots. So like they do the drink, snapshot. You find yourself in your robe processing down the hill. You know, So you have various points where you can make these checks or ask the question again, how far do you want to go next? And that's very you know? cinematic too, which really lends itself yeah. to this 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 particular game that we're sort of thinking about now if you guys were going to try to run creep shadow creep as an adventure would you use the dungeons and dragons rule set the dcc rule set would you use call of cthulhu would you use powered by the apocalypse what game system would you use to run this particular adventure and why i would probably you know call me a true believer but i'd probably i'd probably use dcc interesting with, with but, but with modern day characters, but with modern day characters, mm-hmm. and part of the reason is I see a lot of flexibility in there, um, not only in the in the rule set but also in the tools that are available. Thank you, John Mar, um, in helping us put together a game that might be modern but has fantasy elements. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't played any Call of Cthulhu ever. Um, I mean, I'm, oh, that surprises me. I'm, a, I'm, you know, I understand it. Um, I've got copies of things like, you know, uh, Silent Legions, you know, Kevin Crawford's game. I've got, you know, other stuff like that. Um, but I, I could see also using Apocalypse World or any kind of urban fantasy type rule set. I mean, potentially, although I don't much care for the game myself, I, I imagine you could probably use Fate for it. Um, mm, or Savage Worlds. Or even like, you know, like the Dresden Files, like knockoffs that are out there. Yeah. But I, I'd first go with DCC because I, I understand the rule set and have played with it enough and thought about how I can vary it enough that I'd be very comfortable taking it in directions that the rule set's not already written to go. Interesting. How about you, Hoy? Um, a couple of thoughts on this. I think DCC is a good choice because it already approaches darkness pretty well. Um, and it also scales pretty well because you could, for example, um, dual stats on these characters, like in the, their present day form and in their sort of mythical, you know, past life forms. Right. And so, you know, your present day form, you know, they just have regular stats and, you know, they don't have any, you know, spells necessarily. Right. But then in their path life form, you know, 
Karanak in his in East in Breton, he could be you know a level three warrior, or he might even have well, he might have some mystical knowledge. Who knows what kind of character he might be? But he could be created as such. Um, another weirdo hybrid thing you could do is literally use two different game systems. Use one for the modern day part, oh. and then when they're in the mythical worlds, use another game game system that might be more appropriate for that. I'm not saying that would be easy. It might be an interesting challenge. But I like that a lot, though, because, you know, with, with, with Edgar talking about how when you go into these other dimensions and these other planes, how things need to feel really different, how better of a tool can you, like, what better of a tool is there than to use a completely different rule system for when you're there? That's never even occurred to me. That's kind of brilliant, Hoy. I love right. that. Right. So in real life, you can use Call of Cthulhu, which is nicely scaled. Or, you know, GURPS, which is nicely scaled towards a sort of human scale heroics. Mm-hmm. And then when it becomes more mythical, DCC or any of the other ones that we might have mentioned that you feel is appropriate. Oh, fascinating. That is neat. Yeah, my answer is boring. And I was just going to say Call of Cthulhu because I feel like it would be, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an adventure that I don't think would require any jiggering of the rule set to make it work. Um, although I'm not completely in love with the Call of Cthulhu rule set. Um, but it's, I, I think it would function just fine. So anyways, we are running a little short on time. Um, I'm wondering, Edgar, is there any kind of last thing that you really wanted to, to share or talk about that we didn't quite get a chance to cover that you'd like to go over before we close up? Yeah, I, I want to encourage people to go out and discover uh, fiction, especially from the era of the 20s through the 40s to read. Uh, I read a lot of uh, like detective novels, your Raven Chandler, your Mickey Spillane, and that kind of stuff. And I would put this stuff very much in the same vein. Um, there's interesting stuff, stuff about culture to learn there. Uh, for example, I'm thinking about, you know, the club and, you know, dudes hanging out at the club and even getting like bottle service at the club. Right. Uh, like it's this this sort of fixture in people's lives. That's just not a thing that exists for most people today in this in the same fashion. Um, I, I think there's a lot of we take a lot for granted about what f- you know, like fantasy worlds are like. But when you look at history and when you look at literature um, from especially from different periods than the one in which you're currently living, a lot of stuff will kind of pop out to you. Uh, just as an example, read any pulp you know, sort of pulp fiction from the 1970s, they're always talking about smoking, right? Yes. Or from the fifties or forties, they're always talking about drinking. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't occur to them that that's unnatural for us today because they're not living today, but it can, it can, it can help with your perceptions of your own writing and the assumptions that you make in it, uh, particularly as a, as a game master. That's great. I like that a lot. Edgar, let me let me follow up on that. So we were just talked. You're just basically, you know, come to that phrase. You know, the past is another country, right? Um, now we're very much, you know, we wouldn't be doing this project if we, you know, weren't genuinely curious. But you know, there's a lot of people saying, "Why should I read Appendix N?" You know, it's it's um, I can get this knowledge somewhere else. I don't want to read about racism, sexism, and all this other stuff. You know, what what's what's the value of this to us? You know, and, and what's your sort of, uh, you know. You've given a great response already, but what more can you add to that? I I would say probably, you know, like reading Lovecraft. I've thought a lot about this, honestly. You know, should it be like those uh, sort of cleaned up Conan novels that they put out in the 70s where they removed all that stuff? You know, are we are we whitewashing history in a way by doing that, by removing the the unsavory parts of it? 
or contrarily removing some things that were actually kind of interesting. Um, you know, we live in an era today where, you know, kids are expected to have a heck of a lot of supervision, right? Yeah. Uh, do we lose something when people are over supervised or over surveilled or, or whatever the case may be? And having that kind of historical lens and contrast to, to play against our own experiences, uh, you know, that's, that's where maybe some wisdom comes from. Mm-hmm. Well said. All right. Well, Edgar, thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. Uh, you've been a great guest. It's been a pleasure, Edgar. Thank you very much. I encourage our listeners to go and uh, look up Edgar Johnson's works. Uh, he's written lots of great stuff for DCC, so please check it out. Our next two episodes will be uh, episode 31 will be Lee Brackett's The Halfling and Other Stories. And episode 32 is going to be Philip Jose Farmer's The Gates of Creation. Um, you can reach us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can also go to our website, appendixnbookclub.com, to see our episodes, see links to uh, show notes and resources for the books, and we hope to see you out there. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.